there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. We're going to get to the Word of God. What passage would you like to go to? I'm going to let you pick the text this afternoon. All right, well, let's go to Acts 17 then, if that's where you want to go. And if you're just joining us, I didn't really let them choose. We've been there all day. But we're going to look at this portion of Scripture again where Paul is at Athens. And I gave you a little perspective on Athens in the morning service, but I want to turn the thing around, and I want you to look at it from Paul's side for this few moments we have together. Look at Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. The Bible says, now, by the way, aren't you glad God's always working in the now? Right now. <laughs> now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? How many of you ever had that question about a preacher? Yes? What will this babbler say? The truth of the matter is, they thought it was just talk. Well, what he had wasn't just talk, it was substance. They said, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, which ironically is really, really interesting because they were a city full of strange gods. They had a god for everything. They had more idols than you could ever imagine. So what was one more? But it was strange to them because they'd never heard the truth before. He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him. And brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things... You are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And beginning in verse number 24, down through the end of the chapter, he preaches to them about the God they did not know. We looked at his sermon earlier today. But I want to bring something to your attention, and when I finish, I'm going to give you a certain application. In fact, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm going to give you something and challenge you to do something with it this week. You know, if the, if the Sunday services end on Sunday, something's wrong. So we're not looking to dead end what we've had today or say we checked that box and we had a good day. 
What will grow out of this? What will we do with what we've heard as God's people? Go back to verse number 16. Notice where all this started. This is very important. It was while Paul was waiting. He was waiting on Silas and Timothy to show up. They had stayed in a certain place ministering. He had gone on, and now he's by himself, and he's waiting. Could I simply point something out to you? God often does some of his greatest work while we are waiting. In fact, in the in-between times in life, you know there's parentheses in life, right? They don't last forever, but there's these, these stand-still moments. I told you this morning, I fly a lot, and one of the worst things I ever hear is that a flight is delayed. And the only thing worse is when you're in the plane and they say you're in a holding pattern. You ever been in a holding pattern before? I hate waiting rooms. Anybody with me on that? Uh, we, have, uh, we have the toll roads down south, and it doesn't matter if you have easy pass or not. I always get in the lane where somebody doesn't know what they're doing. I hate waiting. I'm not a patient person. But I'm going to tell you what I've discovered. I've discovered that many times while we're waiting to see what God will do, we're waiting on something to change, we're waiting on somebody to come through, those are the divine appoint, appointment moments where the Lord is oftentimes doing His greatest work. For example, the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, that's, that's a waiting time. They're waiting on Messiah, and there's seemingly no word from God. Can I just remind you that those 400 years weren't wasted years? God was up to something, and then when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son into this world. God is always working while we are waiting. So maybe right now you're in a holding pattern. Maybe you're waiting on something to change, waiting on circumstances to get better, waiting on what? You fill in the blank. We're all waiting on Jesus to come, right? But while we are waiting, the Lord has appointments for us. And it was while Paul was waiting that the Lord did something not only in Paul's heart but in the heart of those people in Athens. Now, I'm going to have you mark four words in your Bible this afternoon, so you've got to get a pen out. We get, a, get a pen in hand, borrow one if you need to. I'm going to have you mark four words, and when I'm finished, I'll be happy if you remember the four words. And they're not my words, they're God's words, and one word from the Word can change everything. So here's what Paul did that we must do. Somewhere across the top of your paper or the margin of your Bible, I want you to write this down. Would you please? Antioch Christians in an Athens culture. Let me tell you who Paul and these men were. They were believers, they were Christians, that had been sent out of a place known as Antioch. Are you familiar with Antioch? Antioch was the great missionary church in the book of Acts. And let me just time out a second and say to this church family, God bless you for what you're doing to get the gospel out here and around the world. I, I know and I see this. This is a missions-hearted church. We're, we're trying to get the message of Jesus to every creature. And I'm going to tell you this. As long as you have the heart of Jesus, God will take care of the heart of this church. And so these are, these are Antioch Christians that love the gospel, love the Lord, love souls. And if I had time, I'd take you back to Acts chapter 13 and show you these Christians, people called Christians first at Antioch, being sent out, and they're going out into all the world. I think if you were in Antioch, you would have said, this is a little piece of heaven on earth. God's people were in fellowship. There was a dynamic congregation. It was the kind of place like this is where you get together on the Lord's Day and everybody's glad to be there and they're studying the Word of God and the apostles are preaching and somebody would have said, hey, we're bringing in the kingdom in Antioch. But I'll remind you that we're not supposed to keep it to ourselves. So from Acts 13, the Antioch Christians go out, and they go through Thessalonica, remember, and they go through Berea, and now they've arrived at Athens, and when they get to Athens, they get smacked right in the face with a culture that is anything but friendly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I wish I could tell you that we're living in Antioch right now. Uh, my, my grandfather, the other grandfather, was a preacher. He was a, just an old-timey mountain preacher here in the hills of West Virginia. Had a gospel tent. And he'd preach sometimes six, eight, ten weeks. And they'd see a bunch of people saved. And, and they would uh, start a church and uh, move on and, and do it all again. Uh, matter of fact, Brother Burks, the church that he, he pastored, was a church that was started at one of my grandfather's evangelistic meetings. And I've, I've heard so much about that era, that generation. How many of you remember a season, even in this area, where churches were booming and good things were going on for the Lord and it was exciting? How many of you remember times like that? All right? That's the Antioch phase, and it's glorious. It's wonderful. But friends, we're not living in Antioch right now. We're living in Athens. So my question is, what do Antioch Christians do when they're living in Athens culture? Do we just cross our fingers and hope Jesus comes real soon? Do we, do we cower in a corner? Do we, do we get hesitant and tentative about our Christian witness? Absolutely not. I believe the Lord gave us Paul's pattern so we would know what to do in the times we're living in. So let's mark the words. I'm going to read. When I stop, you say the next word. Everybody with me? Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he what? All right, so there's the first word. Would you mark the word saw? He saw the city wholly given to idolatry. The first thing that Antioch Christians have to do in our Athens culture is we have to have eyes to see others like the Lord sees them. Now, at first glance, what he sees is a city full of idols, they're everywhere. They're swamped with idols. But I would argue that he saw more than the city generally. He saw people individually. And then he saw more than just the idolatry in that place. What he actually saw were the eternal souls of people who did not know the truth. I must tell you that in recent months, I think one of the great dangers I have seen in my own attitude and my own life and among Christians that I'm around is that if we're not careful, we begin to see this world through the wrong lens. So we see it economically, and we say, my goodness, taxes are up and the economy is down, and we fuss, fuss, fuss. We see it politically, and we get into all these debates and discussions, and this has got to change, and that has got to change, and on and on and on. We see it through the political lens. We see it through the cultural lens. And everybody knows culture is changing. And it's not just changing. It's deteriorating. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. If our culture was a body, it would have cancer right now. If our culture was a building, it would be crumbling right now. If our culture was metal, it would be corroding right now. Our culture is in a mess right now. But if you're not careful, you can start looking at the world around you through the lens of all of these circumstantial things, and you can forget that the economy and the politics and the culture are not going to last forever. But the souls of these people are going to live somewhere for all eternity. Did you know sometimes Christians can watch the news and get mad? Let's take a survey. How many of you have watched the news at all and gotten ticked off? Would you raise your hand, please? All right? And the rest of you people just don't watch the news. So the reality is we all get upset. I can get so aggravated, agitated, and annoyed by what's going on in this world that I just fuss at it all the time. Could I ask you a question? Why should it surprise us when sinners act like sinners? I mean, honestly, why should we be shocked 
that the world is getting worse exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ said it was going to. If you're not careful, you'll get so worked up and angry about what's going on in this world, instead of there being brokenness over sinners, there will be bitterness in your own soul. And I just want to remind you what the Bible says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Our anger is no more spiritual than their anger is. Your flesh will never change their flesh. What we must do is begin to see sinners again like Jesus sees them as eternal souls that need salvation. I'll tell you how to keep from having a chip on your shoulder. Would you write this down? Here's how to keep from having a chip on your shoulder. Keep a tear in your eye. I want you to think just a minute where you'd be if you hadn't gotten saved. I'm thrilled to see our new brother in Christ back in the meeting this afternoon. That means a great deal. Welcome to the family of God. We're glad that you trusted Jesus and glad you're back with friends and family here tonight. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a world of people out yonder that desperately need hope, that desperately need forgiveness, that desperately need peace with God. Think where we would be if somebody had not seen us and given us the gospel. I'm going to tell you what we need. We need some of God's people to start seeing sinners from heaven's perspective instead of earth's perspective. You might be disgusted, but don't you be distracted. You can get so disgusted over the sin around us and the effects of that sin that you get so distracted you're not giving the gospel to sinners like we must do. And I want to tell you, when Paul looked at Athens, I think there was a, a great heaviness, a burden on his soul because he wanted those people to know the same Christ that had changed him on the road to Damascus. Number one, he saw. Second word, look at verse number 16. When I stop, say the next word. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was, circle that word in verse 16. He not only saw, now he was stirred. We need eyes to see. We need a heart to be stirred. I'm thinking now of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. Mine eye affecteth mine heart. You see the connection right here in this verse? Same two things. So you begin to see sinners like Jesus sees them. We begin to have pity and compassion for their soul and realize that their hardness and harshness and hatefulness is because they've never known the love of God. And the reason they're so miserable and making the world so miserable is they've never known the joy that only Jesus can give. And when you see them that way, suddenly something begins to stir inside of you. There's a whole lot of stirring going on in our world right now, and not all of it's good. In fact, back up, would you please, to the end of verse number 13. Remember, remember when they're at Berea and they're, they're preaching and the people from Thessalonica that didn't like it came? Look at the end of verse 13. The Bible says these people from Thessalonica came and stirred up the people. Would to God, would to God, the Lord's people were stirred up as the devil's people. I maybe think it might be a good idea if some of the Pauls in our generation were stirred up as the heathen are about the wrong things. You can tell a lot about a man by what makes him glad, mad, and sad. So may I ask you what stirs you up? Are there any Mountaineer fans here? Just curious. Any Mountaineer fans among us? That's what I thought. And I'm a fan. But it's a funny thing to me how you can get people to go sit in a stadium with several thousand people and scream till their voice is gone and make fools of themselves over a ball game and we never weep over a soul and we never try to get the gospel to anybody. Let me tell you something. When we meet Jesus at the judgment seat, we're going to be ashamed standing next to the martyrs and looking Jesus in the face that we spent so much of our energy and life on time and gave so little of it to eternity. We must have 
the divine stirring in our souls again. You remember when you first got saved? I do. I remember the day I got saved. I remember saying to my mother, Mom, I got saved today. I was so excited about it. What happened to that people? You know who gets most people to Jesus? New Christians. Uh, Michael, how long have you been saved? All right? So in the last two or three years, you've come to know Jesus as your Savior. Now, this is very interesting to me. Here's a new believer bringing a friend to the Lord Jesus. That's not unusual because that's who does most of the witnessing. We first get saved. We're so excited. We want all the family to get in the ark. We want all the friends to know Jesus. We want all the neighbors to come to church, right? So we go after them, and we're excited about it. And somewhere, pardon me, we settle down into our religious ruts. We become professional Christians. And we know all the hymns. We come to all the services. We even take notes on the preacher's sermons and nod our head and give a holy grunt every now and then. But we've learned how to live without being stirred. Would you just breathe a prayer to God right now? Lord, stir me up again. Peter wrote and said, I want to stir you up by way of remembrance. Go back in the sacred memory of your soul and remember where you were and what Jesus did for you and what he's done in your life. Stir yourself up by way of remembrance. Don't wait on a preacher to stir you up. Stir yourself every day. See sinners like they are and ask God to help your heart be stirred for their lost souls. Here is a man who's in love with Jesus, and because he's in love with Jesus, he's in love with sinners. He wants sinners to know Jesus. See, when you get close enough to the heart of God, God's heart will rub off on you. It's like the measles. It's contagious. And after a while, you start not only seeing like Jesus sees, you start feeling like Jesus feels, and you stand over the city looking over Jerusalem, and you weep, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Why? Because suddenly the Lord's burden has become your own. And maybe that's what we don't want. Maybe, maybe we're so in love with our own comfort and convenience. We don't want the stirring. But I'm going to tell you, it's the stirred people who make a difference in this world. Antioch Christians in an Athens culture must have eyes to see and a heart that is stirred. There's a third word. Come with me to verse 22. Then Paul, what's the next word, church? Stood. Would you write down number three? We must have feet that stand. <laughs> that stand. Remember Ephesians, having done all to what? Stand. Some people have the idea that just means you don't do the wrong thing. Like we stand against evil so we don't do e evil. No, no. The idea of standing here is not is not passive, it's active. It's not just, yeah, well, we're, we're doing right. No, no, we're advancing the cause of Jesus. The best defense is a good offense. The Lord never said, sit back and hold the fort and wait till I get there. He said the gates of hell would not, not prevail against the church. This standing is the military standing that is active and aggressive and advancing. It is moving forward. I'm going to tell you what we need. We need some of God's people to begin to take their stand publicly for Jesus again. When I give an invitation, there was a reason I asked our friend to come and make public his profession of faith in Christ. Not that I didn't question his sincerity of prayer right there in his seat. God answers prayer wherever you, wherever you meet the Lord. But I know this. When somebody comes out and identifies with Jesus Christ, it brings great glory to God. It encourages others. But it does something in their own soul because now they are publicly standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're identifying with the one who took their sins on the cross. There's a reason why I still enjoy giving public invitations. 
and when it's no longer in vogue in many places. And I enjoy saying to believers, come and let's pray. Come and let's identify our spiritual needs with the Lord. Why? Because we're publicly identifying ourselves and standing with Christ. But I want you to know the great standing is not done inside the four walls of a church building on Sunday. It is done everywhere you go, every day you live. In fact, I think many times we have this idea, if a guy stands up in a church auditorium and gives a testimony, he's a real Christian. I'm going to tell you the real Christians are the ones who stand on a job somewhere and look their coworker in the face and say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Now, see, that's where the real standing goes on. Let me show it to you. You got your Bible up to Acts 17? Look at the three places where he stood. In verse 17, he stood in the synagogue. That was always his first stop. He started with the religious people. So that's good. We're, we start here where God's people gather to study the Word of God. But that's the starting point, not the ending point. Then look at verse 17 again, Acts 17, 17. After the synagogue, where does he go? He goes to the marketplace. And he's ministering to people daily. He's talking to people every day. God didn't design the gospel to work on Sunday. He designed it to work every day, everywhere. So let me just really get down where we live. May I meddle just a moment? When was the last time you spoke to a waiter in a restaurant? When was the last time somebody pulled up next to you at the gas pump and you saw that person, something stirred in you, and you thought to yourself, God may have put that person right next to me just for me to speak a word to them about Jesus? When was the last time God put somebody across your path and you saw in that person a divine appointment that God had made for you? That's where the standing takes place. It may start at the synagogue, but then it's the ripple effect. It's the, it's the gospel chain reaction. It then gets out where we live every day in the marketplace. Then there's a third place. Come over and mark in verse 19, Arapagus. This was the, the county seat, so to speak. This was the Supreme Court. This was the place where lots of discussion took place. What is this? This is the public venue. This is the, the seat of discussion, if you will. In other words, from the most intimate setting to the most public setting, what are we doing? We're talking about Jesus. We're just talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. Sometimes people say to me, well, preacher, I don't, I'm not a public speaker. Oh, we're not talking about being public speakers. We're talking about being personal speakers. How many of you know how to talk? Would you raise your hand, please? How many of you know Jesus? Then you qualify. Let the redeemed of the Lord what? So why don't we say so? When we get to heaven, who will point at you and say, that man brought me to Jesus? That woman, she, she planted the seed. She gave me a tract. That family lived on our street, and they adopted us and prayed for us till we got saved. I mean, seriously, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. You glad you're going to heaven? Who are we taking with us? And I think sometimes we get this idea, well, I, I don't know that I'm ready for all of that. I don't know that I can answer all the questions. Nobody can answer all the questions. Years ago, I was coming back from a meeting. We were still living in Tennessee at the time. And I was flying out of Salt Lake City, Utah. I'll never forget this. I had just preached somewhere and challenged others to witness, and did you know preachers sometimes get under conviction about their own preaching? I'm sitting on an airplane. A businessman comes and sits down next to me, and the Holy Spirit says, talk to this man. So, and, and for the record, it's harder to talk to one person than it is to preach to a thousand. Strange, isn't it? But we all, we all have this. 
And so I struck up a conversation with the man, and I found out he was a businessman indeed. He was from Salt Lake City, and I started asking him about his religious background, and he found out he's an elder in the Mormon church. Now, immediately, my mind's turning. I was a very young man. My mind's turning. I'm thinking about all the things that they believe and all the questions he's going to ask and all the argument. And, I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go next. And the Holy Spirit just stopped me and said, tell him how you got saved. Isn't that elementary? And I said to this man, very distinguished, very educated and articulate man, I said, uh, I said I, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, I'm a minister. I said, but can I tell you how I met Jesus? He said, oh, sure, tell me about it. It's funny, a lot of people who won't listen to a sermon or a lecture will listen to your story. I always tell people, you want to witness? Just start by telling your story because everybody's got one to give. And I started telling him about what Jesus had done in my life, how I came to realize who I was, how I came to realize who Jesus was. Do you know that for about probably, I don't know, 20 or 25 minutes, on that plane we had the most amazing discussion him asking me questions and me just sharing with him how I came to know Christ what he'd done in my heart what it really meant to be born again what the Bible says about the truth of Jesus and when we finished our discussion I wish I could tell you the man got saved he didn't get saved I pray he came to faith in Christ hope to see him in heaven someday but when we got finished he said this to me and it was for me to hear here's a man an elder in the Mormon church that I was nervous about even engaging in conversation. And this is what the man said to me. He said, sir, he said, I have been raised around religious things all of my life. And he said, I am very educated, but I have never in my entire lifetime heard anything like what you just shared with me. And the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I thought, I wonder how many people I've missed who while I was waiting to figure out a better way to say it, could have been touched if I had simply said to them, let me tell you what Jesus means to me. You want to take your stand? Now look, the devil's crowd, they're praying through the streets with banners and all that kind of thing. You want to take your stand? I'm going to tell you the best way to take your stand. It's not to stir up a riot in the street. Best way to take a stand is you engage somebody else with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and start right where you are. And there's one more word. Would you look at it, please? Acts chapter 17. You've marked in verse 16 the word saw, the word stirred. In verse 22, the word stood. And then look at verse 22 again. When I stop, say the next word. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and what? Isn't that a simple word? He just said. He began to speak. We must have eyes that see and a heart that's stirred and feet that stand. But the most basic thing, don't miss, we must have lips that speak. Funny thing about witnesses, did you know they have to speak? <laughs> if you get called as a witness in a courtroom, do they let you just stand over there and look good and say, we're just going to watch you for a few minutes? No, they ask questions. They want to hear. They need your account. That's what a witness is. Listen to the words of Jesus, and ye are witnesses of these things. Nobody gets saved because we're good speakers. Nobody gets saved because we're persuasive, because of our rhetoric. No, no. You know why people get saved? People get saved because those who already are saved share the truth with them, and the Holy Spirit says to their heart what we could never say, and suddenly they desire to know our Christ. And it all starts when somebody just opens their heart and opens their mouth and speaks about Jesus. 
This is amazing. It's not magical, but it is spiritual. You start talking about Jesus, and I promise you, the Holy Spirit will start talking to their hearts. It's just the way it works. Well, look, please, even in an Athens culture. Would you go to the end of the chapter? We've, we've walked through this whole chapter today, but I want you to see how the whole thing ends because it's beautiful. At the end of the message, there was an invitation. And look at verse number 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. How be it? Oh, I love this. I love this verse. Everybody look at Acts 17, 34. How be it certain men clave unto him and believed. Among the which was Dinosius there, Pegite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Everybody take your pen. Mark three words, would you please? In verse 32, would you mark the word some? There'll always be some. When you speak of Jesus, there'll always be some who mock. Somebody's going to laugh. Somebody's going to call you crazy. It's always been that way. That's not going to change. Some will always mock. Then mark the word others. Others will delay. Others will say, well, that's interesting. Let me think about that. Others will say, and maybe someday, but I'm not ready right now. Others will say, we'll hear you another time. So some mock, others delay. But don't miss this word. In verse 34, would you mark the word certain? There will always be some who mock. There will always be others who delay. But there will always be certain who believe. There will always be somebody that the Lord so deeply works in their heart. Everybody look at me just a second. There will always be, I don't mean it embarrassing, there will always be certain who believe. It was worth driving up here to see you come to know Jesus this morning. I want you to know that. But dear friends, this man right here is just one that represents thousands, millions of people who have never heard and received the glorious message of Jesus Christ. You ever find it interesting that in verse 34, though he's talking about lots of people, he calls two of them by name? I wonder why that is. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer fully, but look at it. Holy Spirit gives us two of their names. One was a man named Dinosius, and the other was a woman named Damaris. I love this. Male and female, everybody gets saved the same way. Here's a man, here's a woman. Both of them hear the gospel and believe and get saved. Can I ask you something? Who's your Dinosius? Who's your Damaris? Is anybody's face coming to your mind right now? Anybody's name? I got a man that lives on my street. We should help me pray for him. Mr. Hicks is lost. And he's Jesus. I say street. We live on a little country lane. It's not really a street. I was out running the other day. I was home for a couple of days. Took a little jog out our lane. We don't get much traffic. And I heard something behind me. And I turned around and looked. And here came Mr. Hicks on his tractor. Come down the lane. I'd been praying for him. He pulled up next to me and turned the tractor off. Leaned over against it and started talking. Pretty soon, things turned to spiritual things. God's been working on him. I didn't even know it. I've been praying for him. God's been working on him. He's got an eight-year-old grandson named Logan, and Logan's been after him for Jesus. He told me, he said, I've been going to church some with Logan. I said, that's wonderful. He said, strange thing. He said, he called me the other night. He was getting ready to go to bed, and he was crying. He said, Papa, he said, if I die tonight, I'm going to heaven. But he said, if you die tonight, you're not going to heaven. And he said, I want you to go to heaven with me. He said to me, he said, you know, if anybody in our family ends up being a preacher, I think it's going to be Logan. I said, yes, and probably his first convert's going to be his papa. That's, that's, that's my man. That's who I've been praying for. Who's yours? 
Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Anybody remember the person that led you to Jesus? How many of you remember who was preaching or gave you the gospel or invited you to church? How many of you remember anybody that, that really helped get you to Christ? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Would anybody raise their hand and think of you? Who's your Dinosius? Who's, who's your Damaris? I told some of the men last night, just a few months ago, I was in a church preaching, and we had an unusual meeting. God just really blessed. Lots of people saved. People had been praying. It was, it was special. On Sunday morning, there was an elderly man that came down the aisle, came to receive Christ as his Savior. It was really precious. It was really precious. And I rejoiced. I rejoiced and anybody gets saved, but I, I didn't know the story. After the meeting, the man who had brought him was standing in the lobby of the church up in years, just sobbing like a baby. He just overwhelmed that this man had gotten saved that morning. I found out why. About two weeks before I was there in the meeting, the pastor at the end of a meeting like this one Sunday, just kind of off the cuff, said to the church family, you know, some of us just need to get out of ourselves a little bit and go find us somebody. And he said, getting ready to close the meeting, getting ready to have a closing prayer, he said, some of you this week, need to look for somebody that you can just befriend, show kindness to, demonstrate the love of God to them, and maybe that would open the door for the gospel. They dismissed. This man, church member, and his wife are driving home down a little country road, and he sees a man he's never seen before, older man in a, in a house, and it was, it was wintertime, and he was shoving his driveway. He went home, he dropped his wife off, changed his clothes, got his snow shovel, and drove back to the man's house. Got out of the car, didn't know the guy. He didn't know him. Got out of the car and said, can I help you shovel your driveway? It blew the guy away. He said, well, sure. And he helps this fella finish shoveling at his driveway. When he finished, he said to the man, he said, look, he said, I, I, I go to, and he said the name of the church, and he said, I'd be honored if you'd come to church with me some Sunday. Just be my friend and come to church. And the old fella, who before had not been at all open to church or the gospel, said, you know, I don't really go to church, but yeah, I'll go with you some Sunday. And that was the Sunday. He came, heard the gospel, and got saved. Now, it was thrilling to see this fellow saved, but I wish you could have stood in the lobby afterwards and watched that man, just a normal, ordinary guy, just a church member, weeping. Because for the first time, he realized God could use him to make a difference for eternity in somebody's life. Maybe we need to stop just talking about how bad our world has gotten and start talking to everybody about how good our Christ is again. That's what Antioch Christians do in the midst of an Athens culture. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.